Well, I promised that we would run a, a tight ship. I know it gets harder on the last day, but I'm still going to uh, stick with the schedule. It is just a few seconds between 10.45, so I will start about the 28 seconds early. Uh, now you're going to see uh, some a different side of the Institute's work. Um, most of the presentations have been more historical, legal, constitutional, theoretical, if you will. Uh, most of what the Institute does is applied public policy research and explanation to policymakers of the terrible consequences of their decisions and trying to understand policies and figure out how we can improve them to increase human liberty and uh, limit uh, government. So our next presentation, Louise Bennett, she's a colleague at the Cato Institute in Financial Services Regulation. That's a very important part of Cato's work because controlling the financial system, intervening in it, has enormous implications for most of the rest of our lives and what we do. She has a background as an economist. She then went on and got her law degree, practiced law, and as you'll see from her accent, she's from someplace in New Jersey, I think. Louise. Okay, so thank you very much. Um, I was surprised that we had uh, banking on the last day. Um, usually they, they start with that so everyone can stay awake. But for those of you who were um, at Cato University last year and heard my speech, I promise that we, I will not be discussing Dodd-Frank in intricate detail because I'm sure everybody's sick and tired of hearing on that topic. Um, and instead today what I'm going to look at, uh, so a little contrary to, to, to what was just said, I am actually going to look at the history of banking, particularly in the United States, and you know, just to look at, at the question, why are we here now? Um, and I think one of the most difficult parts of doing this, or, or focusing on this particular area, or one of the most difficult questions that I get is, if you don't agree that Dodd-Frank is the correct quote-unquote response to the financial crisis, what do you think should replace it? And I'll tell you, I hate that question because it's a very difficult question to answer how do you restructure 200 years of bad policies? Um, so I hope, I hope nobody uh, asks, me, asks me that question in the q and I'm, I'm just uh, setting that up. But um, so to start with, I would say that uh, there you can see, obviously, um, the title of the, of the talk is Populism, Cronyism, and Banking Instability. And so what I'm going to be focusing on today is that key metric of, of um, whether a, a financial system is performing well, is it stable, is it functioning, is it crisis prone? That's the, 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 the question that we're going to focus on. But there you see, of, of course, Occupy Wall Street, um, which uh, arose in 2008 as sort of the latest iteration of kind of populist revolt against uh, what they consider to be the cronies. So um, this is what we're going to discuss. Now, for those of you who were at Cato University last year, um, I'm not going to focus on this too much, but I just want to recap this financial crisis narrative, what came out of the 2008 discussions. The general consensus was that mass deregulation caused the financial crisis, that in the decade or decade and a half leading up to 2008, we'd seen this 
massive deregulation and banks and financial services companies had just been allowed to do, do what they want and this was what led to the crisis. Now, that is factually incorrect, and I won't go into this in too much detail because it's not really the focus of, of the talk, but in fact, I think that ma the regulations on the banking sector and the financial sector had increased in the period between uh, the 1990, 1995, and 2008 by as much as 200%. So this idea that there was some mass deregulation is, is, is completely false on the facts. The second is, the repeal of Glass-Steagall caused the crisis, right? That's popular on both the left and the right. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the terminology, Glass-Steagall was the act um, that separated commercial and investment banking from being or, or taking place inside the same institution. Um, it's a, it's a US-specific act. It doesn't, you don't find it in any other country. Um, but that came out of in, in 1933, and I'll discuss that a little bit in, in the talk and what the history of that was and, and, and why it existed. And then the third thing was that before 1990, when all of these changes started taking place, this quote-unquote mass deregulation and the repeal of Glass-Steagall, U.S. banks were safer. Uh, and, and I hope at the, you know, if nothing else, at the end of today, I will have dispelled that myth. So... I think one of the issues that I want to underscore in today's presentation is this idea, when we speak about populism and when we speak about cronyism, people often view them as being two opposite poles. So populism tends to be more of a mass type reaction. Cronyism tends to be you know, an elite that is able to interact with the government. And people, people sort of think of those two things on opposite opposite ends of the spectrum, and I want to argue today that in fact they are really operating tandem. Um, and I will, I will go into the details of why, but first we need to look at what exactly we mean by the term. So populism um, is a term that arose in um, uh, the late 1800s. Uh, it came out of the so-called populist party, which was a new political party that was kind of a coalition of laborers, farmers, and activists. Uh, it was noted by, because it was very anti-establishment, anti-Washington, anti-intellectual. Um, they opposed laissez-faire capitalism because they felt that laissez-faire capitalism resulted in concentrations of power. They also um, opposed lobbying because they believed they wanted direct, uh, direct control over Congress. Um, they wanted to expand the money supply, so they would have liked today's Federal Reserve. Um, and they supported the introduction of a progressive tax on wealthy Americans. Uh, now, modern-day populism retains some of the original tenets of, the, um, of its historical uh, kind of uh, movement, but the Tea Party, Occupy Wall Street, and the environmental lobby are all modern-day populist movements, even though on some issues they are on opposite sides of the spectrum. And what the modern populists share with their historical counterparts is that they still have an anti-establishment viewpoint and they still have res are resistant to the power of corporate America. 
Now onto cronyism. This is a little brief. I think most people sort of understand what is meant by this, but it's a system in which the success of your enterprise relies on you maintaining close connections with a governmental or, um, or state authority. Uh, and this governmental or state authority will give special favors out to its preferred constituents. Um, in Africa, where I'm from originally, it, uh, this favorite, you know, we, we would call it the banana republic approach, right? People, favoritism could include tax breaks, it could include special regulatory uh, uh, favor, it could include, you know, licensing, uh, bailouts if you get into trouble. So special industries or special companies within industries um, are, given, are given special treatment. Um, and so, so, so that's kind of uh, where the root of, of cronyism is. And then as a subset of that, a subcategory, you have this idea of corporate welfare where corporations are given um, particular types of subsidies, whether it be to help them export or whether it, it allows you know, a certain protectionism or, or to certain protections. And in the United States, we can see, for example, the Farm Bill, the Import-Export Bank, the auto bailout are all examples of, of, of corporate welfare. Um, now, as I said before, you may think that these two things are at odds with each other. But in some sense, they are really two sides of the same coin. And I put this uh, quote up there. This was Holman Jenkins, um, who writes for the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago, he was talking about the Import-Export Bank, but I put the, uh, the quote in there in its entirety because I think he makes a very good point. And he says, please sue everyone from your kindergarten teacher up if you are so poorly prepared for life in our democracy as to believe that the popular struggle signals the beginning of a crusade to purify our political life from in of influence peddling. On the contrary, populist revolt breeds cronyism. The post-2008 mood gave us Dodd-Frank and Obamacare, which requires all Americans under penalty of law to buy the insurance industry's products and makes insurers directly dependent on congressional appropriations for their profits. It's no coincidence that such exercises occur in moments of populist ferment when the reasonable aspirations of Americans are being thwarted by an absence of growth. Um, and I put this in its entirety because I think that the point he makes is pretty much the, the crux of, of, of what I'm going to speak about today, which is an alternative narrative to the financial crisis. And we call this the game of bank bargains. And in this, I'm going to draw quite heavily on a recent book, which I suggest if you really want to learn something about the crisis and, and the history of US banking and this topic interests you, I would highly recommend reading it. It's called Fragile by Design. And it is uh, a book by Charlie Calamiris and um, Stephen Haber. And they are both professors. I think Haber is at, uh, at Stanford and, and Charlie's at uh, Columbia. And they're both banking historians, economists. And they've gone and done a, a study throughout history in the United States and looked at how the system has evolved. Um, and they've come up with this alternative narrative. Um, they've also drawn on, on the work of a, of a number of other, other academics in this field. But, they, but here's the crux of it. They say countries with stable and efficient banking sectors have mitigated the ability of bankers and populists 
to form coalitions that undermine financial stability. Um, and so they have one central question. They say, why are some countries crisis-free? Why are banking crises particularly prominent in certain countries, okay? But then that's not all they look at, because if you have no banks, you'll have no banking crises, right? So they also say, but you also have to have as an efficient allocation of credit in your economy. So we need an additional metric to measure efficacy. So we're looking both, are you crisis prone? And secondly, do you allocate credit effectively in your economy? And they looked at uh, a number of countries and here are, here's what they came up with. So in the first column, we've got the successful six. Now, when they looked at the efficacy of credit allocation. So they were saying, okay, do you allocate at all levels of society? Can anyone who really wants to and is able to repay a loan get a loan? Um, and, they, and they set the bar for that metric quite high, which is why I've d divided um, the, the six and the 13. The successful six are countries that have never had a crisis since 1970 and have, um, have all very abundant credit available in the, in the economy. And so those are Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Malta. Several of those countries, by the way, have financial services as a, as a pretty high proportion of the, of the local economy. So these are not small banking nations. For some, some of them, particularly Hong Kong, Singapore, um, and Canada, they're actually, the banking sector is a pretty large proportion of the economy. The successful 13 are countries that have what we would call a stable allocation of credit. So provided you meet certain, certain criteria, you can probably get a loan, but they've also never had bank, a banking crisis. Um, the, those countries tend to be uh, slightly poorer, and so they don't allocate credit as well at, you know, at the lower, t uh, lower end of, of the market, um, which is why they don't make the, the top six. And those countries are South Africa, Bahrain, Barbados, Bahamas, Belize, Mauritius, and Macau. So what do these countries all have in common? Now, they all share a common banking structure, which is that they have a stable competitive oligopoly. That means there's a couple of firms that compete quite heavily. They don't tend to have a lot of small banks. They tend to be large, stable firms. They're engaged in universal banking. They do securities. They do commercial banking. They frequently are even involved in insurance. So they do the whole um, range of activities. And they have fairly light regulation. They tend to have quite high capital standards, a lot of them. But other than that, they tend to be lightly regulated. But other countries follow that model as well. And they are not as stable. So this cannot be the only determinant of banking stability. And Calamiris and Haber ask, so what is different about these countries? And I think if you look at the three of the original six and nine of the 13 are all small islands or city-states. And Calamiris and Haber argue, well, that means that because they tend to be small uh, countries or, or city-states that are um, have certain types of uh, pe you know, people that are, that are living there. Um, people's interests tend to be aligned, and there tends not to be quite the incentive for different interest groups to try and get control over the banking sector. And they're very open to outside competition. So if their banking sectors 
are not performing, other banks will step in. The other interesting thing is that all of these, um, these uh, basically six, six for six and the successful 13, with the exception of number 13, Macau, were all at some point uh, former British colonies. Um, and so they come to the conclusion that it's the historical and institutional characteristics of these countries that have resulted in something that is quite unique, which is that these countries have anti-populist, or I suppose you could say anti-democratic, and I mean that in a very specific sense, um, protections that stop the banking sector being subject to majority coalitions that may arise over time. And now we move on to the United States. And I am uh, you know, looking at a case study. So essentially what has happened in the argument here is that through a period of time, there have been successive alliances that have resulted in the United States having an abundant credit allocation. There's a lot of credit in the US, but there is not a lot of stability. And this is directly as a result of, um, of, of, of these alliances and the tendencies. And, and, and what's interesting is it's always kind of a populist crony alliance, right? That's, that's, that's been an, a, a historical characteristic. So let's look at them. The first, um, we have uh, the federal government and monopoly banks. Now, after the uh, War of Independence, uh, the federal government came up with a special charter to create the Bank of the United States. Uh, well, initially, I think it was called um, the Bank of North America, but then it, it uh, changed its name. Um, now, I note that this was heavily opposed or uh, by Thomas Jefferson, who thought that it was not the place of the federal government to be chartering banks, and that that should be a job left to the states. He lost that fight. Um, this was Alexander Hamilton's uh, suggestion, and so they needed the money, they needed a bank to finance the war effort to rebuild the economy. And so this bank was largely uh, supported by the commercial classes. There was a group of shareholders. Um, it was opposed by the agricultural lobby. But this bank loaned money to the, to the federal government, and as a result, it would get a lot of privileges. So, for example, they um, had limited liability for the shareholders of the bank, which at the time was unusual. It's not so unusual today. Um, and also they had the right to hold government deposits. Um, but the problem with this bank was it focused on the larger scale commercial interests. And so, again, as I said, the agricultural lobby opposed the existence of the bank. They also didn't get a lot of funding from it. As a parallel to that, that was going on on one side, the states themselves had strong incentives to develop their own banking charters, but that meant that they would try and restrict cross-border banking because obviously you, you know, each state wanted its own, its own banking system because you can levy taxes and so forth on, on the banks that operate within your state. And so what you found was that slowly what started to develop was the system of segmented monopolies in different geographical regions. And that has very significant impact on banking stability in the United States because it meant that if a particular geographical region experienced a downturn, the banks in that region would fail. There was no kind of diversification or protection. And the, the other major problem with this was that within the states and within this large um, 
Bank of the United States, there was, a, there was significant restrictions, or there were significant restrictions on who was able to become a banker and who would have access to credit. So this was determined frequently on the basis of non-economic criteria, like what your political party affiliation was. And, um, and, and so by the time that um, the populist president, Andrew Jackson, came into power, uh, these groups of segmented uh, banking monopolies within the states had become quite powerful. And so he vetoed the rechartering of the Bank of the United States, and so ended the, uh, the, the, the large federal bank. Then we move into the period around 1832 to 1990. This was an incredibly stable period in terms of the structure of the banking market. But the alliance that dominated was what we would call between agrarian populists and community banks. Um, and this, this period was, uh, was characterized by a number of features that were quite, that meant the United States had quite a unique banking system relative to any other country in the world. For example, in many states, there was the absence of branch banking. So banks were individual banks. Um, they would have a money center bank that they may draw on, but you weren't allowed to branch within certain states. Um, this meant that the, the failure of small banks was, was far more likely and could spread from town to town. Um, and, and that's happened right up to the 1980s when uh, the banking system in Texas collapsed. Um, it was most notable in, in, during the Great Depression. And Senator Glass, who was the senator of Glass-Steagall fame, um, he said that states that allowed branch banking fared far better through the depression than those that prohibited it. So this was a, a consistent um, issue. Notwithstanding that, this, uh, this alliance resulted in the introduction of Glass-Steagall. And what they were trying to do essentially here was um, restrict the, or, or reduce the ability of, of Wall Street to have a kind of competitive advantage. Because by the 1930s, it was clear that the Wall Street banks, because they were able to leverage, you know, um, commercial investment banking can act counter-cyclically. You can use deposits to kind of fund your, your, um, your uh, investment activities and vice versa. So you have, a, you have a competitive advantage. And this was really one of the great coups of the... Uh, of the community banking and, and populist alliance was they were able to institute, despite extreme resistance from, from the New York banks, they were able to institute this, uh, this uh, split. The other major coup that they had was the introduction of federal deposit insurance. Now, um, which was also part of the reason why Glass-Steagall was introduced, because the argument was you couldn't have federally insured deposits and allow banks to basically use investment, you know, use, use deposit or insured deposits to fund investment banking type activities. So that was the other reason. But private deposit insurance had existed before. So this was, this, but this was the first time federally de insured deposit um, insurance had, had come into being. Um, but as Calamiris and Haber argue, this allowed the states or the state to use banks to reward politically favored constituencies. And we see that being a consistent theme um, throughout the next intervening decades. So what was the problem with this alliance? So prior to the establishment of the Federal Reserve and, and FDI, or I should say prior to the, the Great Depression, what we saw was successive banking uh, crises. And 
this model tended to exacerbate normal business cycle fluctuations and occurred very predictably, almost always at the height of a boom period. Um, the part of the problem was this lack of diversified risk within banks. Banks were too geographically focused, so if you were in a town with mining, the mining industry suffered a setback, the banks would fail. Um, the other interesting con uh, result of this was you had a concentration of banking reserves inside the Wall Street banks. And what that meant was that the entire banking sector became extremely vulnerable to securities market shocks. So if there were any stock market problems, the entire banking sector, regardless of where you were in the country, was quite vulnerable. Um, so let's look at uh, the bank closings. There we can see 1873, there was a crisis, there were 100, 1893, 500, um, you know, all the way to, to 1914. And you can see it's quite systematic, this follows, follows the business cycle. There, if you go a bit further, um, 1930 to, I guess, 1935, you can see nearly 4,000 banks failed in 1934. Um, so this was, this was really the, the, the height of the, of the bank failure period. So the point of, of, of highlighting all of this is that banking instability is not something that happened in 2008. This has been a consistent theme in the United States. Um, and there we have a, a photo of, of crowd, crowds of banks um, or crowds of people standing outside a, a, a failed bank, uh, which is something we didn't really see until, until about 2009 and, and even then not really to the same, same degree. Then let's move on to the, the current day period. And this is the, the alliance uh, number three, which is between national banks and ur urban activists. Now, what we mean by urban activists is something quite specific. I, I, when I hear that term, I sort of have a, you know, a vision of kind of a bunch of community organizers sitting around in a room thinking about who they're going to protest. That's not exactly what, um, what, what Calamiris and Haber mean by urban activists. What they're looking at is really any group within a kind of urban setting, um, so non-agricultural non groups, that are looking to kind of either, you know, get special favors from the government for a particular downtrodden uh, component of society. So where you look at people that are saying, okay, well, we need housing or we need school, you know, we need funded loans for, uh, for students or, or whatever. That's, those are the groups that, that they're, they're referring to. Um, so they argue that in the, Following sort of the, the collapse of the, of the banking system in Texas and so on, a lot of national banks wanted to grow quite rapidly. But in order to have their mergers approved, right, by, by the Fed and government, they needed to be viewed as good corporate citizens. And the way that you do that is you get the urban activists on your side. And so what they say is that during this period, the banks channeled more than 850 billion to these activist groups. Most of that was through the housing market, right? That's where the real subsidies happened. Um, it was more than 3.6 trillion in financing. Um, and they argue that the subprime lending crisis is just the latest in a long string of disasters. So that was the result of allocating credit in a way that doesn't make economic sense, but makes sense in order to appeal to certain interest groups within the country. Oh, sorry, let me go back. 
So if we go into the present day and we say, why is financial regulation more of a problem than a solution? Um, and so I've titled this Populism Cronyism in the, in the Age of Dodd-Frank. And I'm, I'd like to just look at this photograph for a minute because um, this was actually taken by one of my Cato colleagues, um, Emily Ekins, who, who visited the uh, Occupy Wall Street protests in 2009 and took a bunch of photographs. Um, and here we see this one sign. This is, I think, before Elizabeth Warren was elected to the Senate, but she was in, uh, trying to get this uh, Consumer Financial Protection Agency up and running. Um, and they're saying, okay, well, Elizabeth Warren, you need to enforce main, more enforce margin requirements, restrict and regulate derivative trading, prevent unlawful mergers, um, and regulate credit default swaps. Um, and they're, and they're insisting that the Consumer Financial Protection Agency does this. So why is Dodd-Frank a problem? Dodd-Frank has increased the scope and power of regulators particularly um, in, you know, in the banking sector, in the securities markets, to enforce social and political aims through the banking industry. Now, why do I say this? I say this largely because of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Okay, it's a new creation. It was part of the Dodd-Frank Act, and it is overtly political in its aims, right? This agency is not required to look at whether a bank makes a decision on commercial grounds, they have to determine whether the bank is being fair to particular constituent groups. So for example, it allows the agency to fine and discipline banks who don't comply with fair treatment of customers, but the act is absolutely silent on what fair treatment means or what the word fair means. So it's really in the eye of, of, of the beholder, and in this case, the eye of the beholder is the head of the CFPB. So how do we determine standards of fairness? Um, well, let's look at what the, uh, what the director of the CFPB, Richard Cordray, said. Part of the act gives, um, gives uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau the right to punish abusive practices as a corollary to, to fair treatment. And he says, well, what is an abusive practice? Well, we'll know it when we see it. <laughs> right. So how's that for, first of all, I, I mean, that's the major issue for the rule of law, okay, because arguably whether you're a private citizen or a company or a bank or even a government official, you are, you know, you have to know ahead of time what, you know, what, when you're doing something wrong to be punished for it, right? You need to know that it's, you can't have, you know, you can't be tried for a crime that doesn't yet exist. So that's, uh, that's, the, the, that's the problem. But What's interesting about this bureau is that they specifically target and have, now they've only been around a couple of years and really up and running for a while, um, but one of the things that they have, have been focused on is payday lenders. They don't like payday lenders. So they have essentially tried to shut down the market for payday lenders, um, despite the fact that in a lot of these hearings, many people who use payday lenders have turned up on, in droves and said, well, if we don't use these people, we basically have to use the mafia or whoever, whoever will give us money. Um, but they've targeted that. So this is a very overt thing. This is a group that is not politically popular, so we're going to target them and, sh and put them out of business, even though there is no clear mandate within the act to do that. 
So these are real, real substantive issues. Then we've got the newly created Financial Stability Oversight Council. Um, it's housed inside the Treasury, and I highlight that because the Treasury is a political branch of government. It's not an independent regulator. And um, what the Treasury says, uh, what, what the FSA can determine is what organizations or which organizations are systemically important. Now, the words systemically important are everybody's favorite buzzwords at the moment. And according, depending on who you speak to, according to, to various people, everyone is systemically important, whether you're an auto, auto manufacturer or, I mean, you're systemically important if, they're clearly systemically important if you work there or if you have some interest in it, but it's not clear that the country, from the country's perspective, a lot of these, these institutions are systemically important. Um, but the, the FSOC can decide that, you know, you're PIMCO, you're very large, therefore you must be systemically important, and we can come up with a whole set of new rules to regulate you, but also you're telling the market, well, this, we've, we've done an assessment of this organization, they're systemically important, that means if they fail, this is a huge catastrophe and we're going to have to bail them out. Um, and I think that's the, 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 there's, there's sort of a double-edged sword here. It's both a downside and an upside for the organizations that are, that are, are given this label, although many of them don't want it because it, it does come with a significant downside. The other, the other um, issue is uh, w they can determine you know, what penalties should these organizations suffer as a result of being determined that you know, they're systemically important. Because if you're systemically important, you can't fail, right? Because then obviously that's going to be massively problematic for, for the economy. Um, so you know, the latest, the, the two industries that they've been looking at now are insurers. Um, I know we've been talking about banking, but this is kind of linked to that. So it's insurers and, and asset managers. And there is no evidence that insurers or traditional insurers or asset managers are systemically important. And of course, we remember what happened in 2008 with AIG and the AIG bailout. And we now know in hindsight that there was no bank that had exposure to AIG that was so drastic it would have brought it down. So in fact, the AIG bailout was entirely unnecessary. Um, and that's something you, 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 don't, you don't hear very often, but that's on record. Every single bank head that was pulled out in front of, you know, would say, oh, well, we had a billion dollars or so. But really, the, 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 we, had to, we had to save AIG because, you know, it would frighten the market if we didn't. So that was kind of uh, the, the argument. So, um, so looking at this, I would say, you know, should we put all of this blame solely at the feet of the regulators? Well, no, because the act is very poorly drafted. It gives this extraordinary mandate to, um, to, to, to these people. And the other problem is, even when the regulators are trying to show restraint, so for example, there was the recent furore over um, high-frequency trading, and there, what people were saying with, with high-frequency uh, traders is, oh, well, they're creating market instability, they're doing this, they're doing that. Now, the SE, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, had looked at this issue and they'd said, okay, well, does high-frequency trading result in, in more market instability? And they came to the conclusion, no, that electronic trading itself could potentially have some downsides which need to be addressed, but electronic trading is much broader than high-frequency trading. 
So they had looked at this, and then um, we saw Mary Jo White, who's the, who's the head of the SEC, was pulled before Congress and told she wasn't doing enough and you know, she needed to look at her facts again. So there's a lot of political pressure on regulators who have a budget you know, and have to uh, get congress congressional approval for things to deliver to special interest groups in Congress. So now I'm going to look at a particular example of um, this uh, phenomenon of, of using uh, banks and uh, financial services companies to uh, achieve political or, or social ends. Um, and now many of you may have read in the, in the journal, um, probably not in the New York Times, but about something called Operation Choke Point. Um, now, Operation Choke Point uh, was a Department of Justice initiative uh, where the Department of Justice would investigate transactions and banks that had engaged in certain types of, or, or that had given loans to certain types of borrowers who were involved in a particular set of activities. Um, and what the ultimate um, aim of this was, well, they, they were saying, we're targeting industries and activities that are associated with fraud. I mean, I don't know of any industry or activity that doesn't have some fraud, but anyway. Um, but what they were trying to do is restrict private bank funding to these specific borrowers. And so what they did was they limited the ability of borrowers to finance activities, and they're looking to basically shut these types of borrowers out of the formal economy, so they cannot get loans from, you know, Wells Fargo or PNC. Let's look at what they thought of as problematic industries and activities. So, payday lenders, everyone's least favorite uh, uh, financial institution. Escort services, um, travel clubs, I'm not sure what that is. If anybody can enlighten me, I'd, I'd be interested to know. Lifetime memberships, home-based charities, pornography manufacturing and distribution, drug paraphernalia. Again, I'm not sure what they mean by that. Tobacco sales, online gambling, Ponzi schemes. Now, if you register your business as a Ponzi scheme, you probably have bigger problems than the Department of Justice. But anyway, firearm sales, firework sales, dating services, the millennials, and I can say this because I'm not a millennial, I'm too old, but, but the dating services are also considered to be, a, to be a problematic industry. And then industries like coin dealers, antiques, and so, so on. Um, the result. Okay, many lenders have ceased to conduct business with firms operating in these, in these kinds of industries. So Wells Fargo, US Bank, or PNC, Fifth Third Bank, they've all indicated that in certain, at least with payday lenders and in some of the other industries as well, they're not in fact going to be engaging with those types of lenders. Then there was, this actually came to light because of an, in, an, an incident with, with Bank JP Morgan, who refused to process payments for a condom manufacturer called Lovability. And they said that the reason they weren't going to do that is because of the reputational risk associated with being associated with this kind of, uh, kind of uh, institution. Um, and they got a lot, of, uh, a lot of flack for that, but in fact, it seemed like what they were doing was quite sensible, particularly if you look at the recent litigation that all the banks are, are getting um, uh, hit with by the Department of Justice, so you don't want to get on the bad, their bad side. And, you know, the Department of Justice is saying, well, no, 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 we're not targeting everybody in these industries, we're just targeting some. 
But the, the point is they don't have to target everybody because the banks don't want to be involved with any of the, in, of the people in these industries. Even if they target one or two banks, that's enough. I mean, that's always the, the argument with, with prosecuting fraud or prosecuting misconduct in institutions. You really only have to target one or two people for it to have a chilling effect, and that's is essentially um, what they're doing. So in conclusion, um, and I wanted to leave at least a, sort of a half an hour for questions, and so, uh, so I'll, I'll just wrap up, but you know, what do we learn from history is, well, we learn nothing from history, right? Dodd-Frank is just another iteration and a far worse iteration of what's been going on for successive generations, which is that the banking sector has essentially become, a, a, you know, a, a utility, right? A utility for government. And it doesn't matter whether it's small banks and it doesn't matter whether it's large banks, but where you have regulators that have excessive amounts of power, where you have a Congress that has an, a, a lot of power, um, and where you have, you know, Congress people that are a little bit, um, uh, how should we say, well, they're prepared to, to scapegoat private institutions in order to get ahead, you're going to end up with a system where banks are public utilities and are required to um, enforce social and, and, and political ends within the economy. And, you know, it's interesting, I, I just want to uh, reiterate, um, we mentioned earlier some of the, the, the countries that had escaped the net. And if you take a country like Canada, for example, Canada has all the same populist and crony, you know, pressures that the United States has. There's nothing special about Canadians that, you know, they've escaped this. All they have is a system you know, of banking regulation that doesn't allow those groups to form alliances that impact the larger economy. And so that's what's fundamentally different. And so it's, an, it's, it's kind of an interesting observation that, you know, countries can, you know, banking crises are not inherent. You can avoid them if you're prepared to, to not allow your banking sector to be co-opted by special interests. Okay. Um, I guess now I can take some questions. Okay, first at the microphone. So how do we keep our banking industry from being further co-opted by special interests? So we have a constitution written by people who understood the need to have competing uh, powers playing off of each other to avoid concentration of power in one area. Our banking industry clearly wasn't designed quite that way. You've identified some places that do a better job. We are not among those. So how do we actually put that in place given the political realities of uh, the folks who would like that not to occur? Um, so I feel like that, that question is a, <laughs> is, a, is a slight variation on, on, on the one I mentioned first up. <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 that's fine. Um, so look, I mean, you know, these things are gradual. You can't really undo in one day 200 years of, of, of bad policies. I mean, that's the reality. Dodd-Frank was a giant leap in the absolute wrong direction because it is so broad and it does give so much discretion to regulators and also quite a lot of power to Congress, which isn't always a good thing. Um, so my, my, I mean my argument is we need to take a step back and say, okay, well, 
we know that regulators, I think one of, one of Dodd-Frank is kind of premised on this idea that we can have this omniscient regulator that can foresee all crises and help us escape the next crisis. And that's just not, you know, that, whether it's the Fed or whether it's the SEC, they don't have a good history in this area. You know, nobody can, can tell the future. And if you can, you're probably very rich and not working in Washington. So, um, so I think that, you know, we need to get away from this idea that we can prevent all failures, that we can stop, you know, that we can, we can uh, use banks uh, to, to facilitate public policy ends, such as we saw with the housing, with the housing market. And, um, and, and, you know, I, I think the first step to that is obviously the repeal of, of Dodd-Frank and things like this, the, the CRA, um, which, is, which, is, which was what dictated a lot of the fair housing policies and so on that was so destructive. Okay. Um, okay, I guess I'll take this slide. Thanks. Um, thank you very much. It was really a nice talk. Interesting. Um, you sort of breezed over uh, the question of high-speed trading, mm -hmm. and you indicated that the concern appeared to be whether or not it led to instability. But a reading of Michael Lewis's recent book, Flash Boys, shows so clearly that high-speed trading became, in fact, high-speed insider trading, trading against customers, if, why didn't the regulators put people in jail? So, I mean, yeah, Michael Lewis is, is an interesting, so I, I, I think he, he does unfortunately play a little, I mean, he's a great writer, but unfortunately he plays sometimes a little fast and loose with these facts. And I think one of the problems with that book is that he, you know, he sort of targets high-speed traders, but then he makes this dark pool operator that sort of seems to want some government, you know, special special treatment as like the hero of the story. And somebody wrote in, uh, I think it was in the journal, uh, that wrote a book review, and they said, you know, it, it, you can well imagine a parallel universe where it was the high-speed traders that were the the heroes of the book, and and the dark pool operator that was this this evil uh, evil event. Look, I mean. My personal view with highs, and sorry to kind of deviate in, into, into high-speed trading for those people that are, are not very interested in securities markets, but if you build a computer that is, you know, you spend hundreds of millions of dollars doing that, and the computer can operate so quickly because, you know, it's, it's, the technology is just so fast, that's not insider trading. That just means you've invested in... No, well, I mean, I, I would I would disagree with that because I think you're investing in, pro, in 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 a market or a product that is getting you that information much quicker. Um, so I'm and the the the, the upshot of, of high high frequency trading is that it's made trading much cheaper for everybody in the market, not just the people that. Uh, so so I would I would dis, I, I mean I would disagree with 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 Michael Lewis's viewpoint on that particular issue. But we can chat more um, at the end. Sorry. Uh, I'm not exactly sure on the facts, but I understand that Canada required skin in the game when you buy a house that you had to have a 20% yeah. down payment. Now, who in the United States determines what those what 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 the down payment must be? Is that who does it? Is it state? or is it federal, and wh why, why didn't they, you know, have yeah. the same kind of principle? So the, the qualified mortgage rules, um, 
it's it's a that's an excellent question. It's a very it's a very complicated. It's set federally, gen, you know, generally, um, and what happens is you are set, you know. What we saw is, I think at one point they used to require a much higher down payment. This was, you know, a number of decades ago, and then with things like the the CRA, which was passed in the early 90s, where you were saying, well, you're shutting out borrowers who are, you know, who are poorer, so they can't have access to housing because they can't get the down payment to pay, um, and so you saw overall a, a gradual lowering of mortgage standards. Um, and you're right, that's absolutely the, the, the answer. I mean, in terms of housing markets where, which are more stable, you require 20 to 30% down payment. Default is very standard across, you know, it's 8 or 10%. And I think in the US even that was the case for a long time. Um, and that's part of the problem with 2008 is the models were all modeling that expected default of 8 to 10%. But in fact, what no one took you know, or, or took uh, notice of was the fact that over a decade, the mortgage standards had largely collapsed. And that was partly because of the lobbying by the two big GSEs, Fannie and Freddie. That was partly because of lobbying by the banks themselves. You know, they had come up with a system where they could package these mortgages and pass them on, um, you know, securitize them, pass them on. And so they weren't directly taking the risk if the loan went bad. Um, and so you gradually saw this reduction in, in, in the credit quality. But, you know, that's, that's the answer. But re recently we, um, we saw uh, the, the Federal Housing Association came out with their qualified mortgage rules which apply across the board. And it was a, you know, they're kind of laughable, right? They're still really low. And they were criticized for being too stringent. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where you can't really... Uh, the, the, the lobby for that, you know, for low mortgage rules and, the, and, and low is, is just so strong. It's really, really difficult to get more, more stringent measures through. And the question is, you know, we, I, I'm, not, I'm not a believer in, in that this even necessarily needs to be done through an agency, right? A lender who is required to have skin in the game is not going to lend to a borrower who can't pay them back. And that's really where you need, you, you know, they need to focus, focus some attention. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I'm all in favor of deregulating things, but I just wanted to try and clarify something. You had talked about, you know, the Glass-Steagall Act has pointed to, you know, um, one of the reasons that led to the uh, subprime crisis, which sort of impacted the financial crisis o only partly, wasn't a, you know, half of it even, but you weren't trying to make the point that the subprime crisis could have happened had the Glass-Eagle Act not been repealed? No, what I was saying is that's a myth, right? This right. myth that somehow we would have avoided every problem if we separated commercial and investment banking. And that's a good point because the, the evidence, I think, internationally is, you know, I look at investment banks and I'm not really sure how they make money without taking excessive risks, right? They're incentivized to do that because that's how they make money. And I think if, you, if you're able to balance, you know, if you're able to have an institution that's more broad-based, it acts as a counter-cyclical buffer. But actually, there was only one bank that, that was a dual commercial investment bank that got into trouble, and that was Citibank. Um, all the other banks that got into trouble were either thrifts, um, which was like WAMU, Wachovia, those kinds of banks, or they were pure investment banks like Bear Stearns and, and, and Lehman Brothers. 
Um, so in the United States, only Citibank was, was a universal bank. And Citibank's been bailed out like three or four times. So um, it's kind of a unique case. Thank you. Uh, just as a, before I make my, pose my question, just as an aside, I think the term excessive risk should never be used in polite conversation since there's no such thing. Any risk is excessive or not excessive depending upon how you're compensated for it. Yes, so there's no such thing enough. in a free market as excessive risk, yeah. just as an aside. Yeah. Um, uh, of all the conversations I hear concerning financial regulation, the two words uh, that are to me the most scary and the one that I'm focusing my question on is uh, choke point. Uh, choke point is the most scary because it, it is the one, on the one hand, we all resist government interfering with the markets, yeah. but to eliminate, but to make it impossible for people to transact business when both want to, that becomes so frightening almost to make the muskets come out of the barn. Uh, yeah. my, my question is, uh, Operation Choke Point seeks to remove an essential tool from business transactions, the ability to use the banks. Uh, it requires, it, it works because the government can control banking, uh, either directly or by mm -hmm. more indirect. Mostly through penalties, or right? By and, yes, and because yes, their yes. banks are regulated and they're frightened. Yeah. Uh, what could you speak to, obviously briefly, the dynamic if, uh, of the possibility that banks exist, which they do, outside of the governmental control of the United States, offshore banks, if you will, uh, what, what would be the impediments of those banks who have no uh, performing the banking, the transfer services within the United States since borders sort of stop mattering electronically. Uh, is it impossible for offshore banks to perform those transfers, credit card, electronic funds transfer services uh, without having any contact with the United States? So that's a good question, and unfortunately, as the case of BNP <laughs> Paribas, I don't know if anybody's seen the recent issue around the OFAC sanctions um, against B BNP. I think they, they've just posted a record loss because they, um, they've had to pay this, this significant fine to the United States government. They're a good example. So what's interesting about the United States and why the United States is such a critical um, banking market is that it's the one place where you can really get or it's the, it's the one place, I mean, obviously worldwide transactions tend to be denominated in dollars, and this is where the dollar funding market is. And it's also where the short-term debt market is. There's no other significant short-term debt market anywhere else in the world. I mean, there are some smaller pockets, but this is the main one. So what the United States government has done through its various agencies is said, if you want access to the short-term funding market or the dollar funding market, you have to apply you, you know, your subsidiary, quote unquote, and your, your parent indirectly has to comply with our rules and regulations. Um, now, choke point, I don't know, I, they haven't gotten to that point yet, but take the example of, of OFAC. So obviously there's several countries around the world that have significant sanctions, Iran, Iraq. And what BNP had done was inter interface with certain people or, or companies or activities that were on the list of, of prohibited um, activities. 
and they had then um, gotten themselves into trouble because they had denominated these activities in, or, or this, these transactions in dollars. So there was no funding through the US institution. There was nothing that happened in the United States, right? But because the activities were denominated in dollars, they were subject to the fine. And they had an option, they could have left you know, they could have had their banking license revoked and, and left the country. But that's a major penalty for any institution, so they didn't want to do that, so they paid the fine. Um, but that's kind of how they get, they, 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 they control um, offshore activities. Now, if you're a U.S. bank, it doesn't matter. I mean, you have to comply with the United States. So there was a big kicking, there were a lot of kicking and screaming about the, a lot of the derivatives rules because... If you're a, a foreign entity, right, you know, a foreign entity, say, operating in Greece, maybe that's a bad example, Germany. Um, if you're a foreign entity operating in Germany and you, you transact, um, say you're buying a derivative that has nothing to do with the United States, no, no linkage to the United States, the only thing is that one of the counterparties happens to be the foreign subsidiary of a U.S. domiciled bank. So J.P. Morgan, Germany... So, you know, as one of the counterparties in this, you are subject to the U.S.'s derivatives laws. Okay, so a lot of those banks now no longer want to interface with their U.S. counterparts because it's very, very onerous. You have to register as an accredited, um, you know, an accredited investor with the CFTC. You have to, you know, file things annually. So it's, 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 it's very onerous. But that's how they do it, to, to your point. Thanks. Hi. Uh, I was very interested when you were talking about efficient credit allocation as a way of avoiding crises. Do you not think that chronic malinvestment and printed credit caused by interest rates rigged by the Fed, which kind of amplify the business cycle, have had a role to play in the crisis in 08 and we've seen since 1913? Yes. Yeah, so I'd like to try and avoid practicing monetary policy without a license. I leave that to some of my colleagues. But there is no doubt that there's an interplay here because one of the reasons why it's so important for the United, for, for the federal agencies and, and those kind of organizations, the, the state, to have so much control over the banking sector is to finance, you know, their activities and to finance the, their debt and to keep interest rates low. Um, and if you look at, like, uh, for example, um, just, just, one, just one example of the, of the interplay, but the capital standards regime, right, the way the capital standards regime, everybody talks about having higher capital standards, right? But the devil is in the details because if you look at how Basel III is set up, it's set up to give primacy or to give a special treatment to sovereign debt. And it doesn't matter what form that sovereign debt is, whether it's US, US sovereign debt, US government bonds, or whether it's Greek government bonds, you get special treatment and, and an incentive to hold that debt as a, as a bank. Um, so if it doesn't make financial sense for you to hold that debt, you are being penalized ultimately in terms of your stability down the road. So those, those things are, there's a big interplay. And what was interesting in just directly to the crisis is that banks were encouraged to hold mortgage-backed securities, right? Not to trade them, but to hold them as balance sheet because they were considered, quote unquote, safe assets under the capital regime. So it's a good question, thanks. Uh, I come from Canada and have taken plenty of money in banking courses. Um, from the outside, looking at the debate in the U.S., I find it, I think rhetorically, it's pro-regulation and anti-pro-deregulation, uh, which I don't think is a useful framework 
um, as opposed to fewer and better and stronger regulation. Um, and from my Canadian uh, point of view, uh, we have our, uh, the Canada Housing and Mortgage Corporation and the Bank of Canada, the two biggest right. institutions in this area. And what they exercise is extreme caution whenever they're you know, being lobbied about new financial innovations and, and so on. Um, and so I just want you to, if you could comment on the concept of financial innovation, because when I think of, uh, from my economics courses, innovation is expanding the technological frontier, but a lot of financial innovation doesn't seem to do that. It seems to be more about finding arbitrage op opportunities around regulatory agencies. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's some ex extent to which that's true. I think a lot of financial innovation in, in the U.S. over the last couple of years has been largely to avoid, it's been largely tax-driven. Um, so there's definitely a question around the incentive structure. But some innovation, like securitization generally, and I'm not talking about sort of the, the strange and, in, and esoteric products, but just generally uh, securitized products, has opened up an enormous amount of credit. So if you look globally at the last 20 years, the access to credit and the, and the movement across borders has been largely a, a good thing, um, if you take it outside of, outside of the US, US context. I personally, I don't think, I, I think you, if you look at the incentive structure and you're incentivizing people to take, uh, well, I, I don't want to use the term excessive risk because I was, I was rightly uh, yelled at, but if you incentivize people to take that risk, they may, they may fail down the line, you know, so then you have to be prepared to let them fail. Uh, and not call it, uh, a, you know, a, a major failure. Well, that's what happens when, you know, you, you got certain payoffs to take the risk, and if it doesn't work out, then you fail. Uh, Canada has been a little bit more, I think, conservative. But what I meant in the, in the speech by lightly regulated is you don't have... The regulations they have are like the 30% down payment mortgage, and there's, there's certain... Uh, Canadian banks, I think, are not quite as incentivized to create these products because they are an oligopoly and so they don't have, you know, people below them sort of trying to take their market share. Um, so it's, a, it's just a very, different, a very different structure. But I certainly, I don't think that the problem here has really ever been the fact that these, these esoteric products may or may not exist without you know, without all of all of the incentive structure, but it's the incentive structure that's the problem, not the not the products, because they can be used for lots of good things as well. Hi, uh, as libertarians, we generally support laws that punish fraud and coercion and uphold mm -hmm. contracts, and that's about it as far as laws that we support. Yeah. So, do you find that outlook too limited when it comes to financial regulation, or to put my question another way, are there regulations that you support? that fall outside of that general uh, worldview of only punishing fraud and coercion and upholding contracts? Is there anything else that you feel is necessary in the financial sector? Um, you know, I mean, we're so far away from being in a system that, that punishes that, I, I, or that only punishes, uh, you know, fraud and coercion. I mean, and then in, in the term, in, in, in sort of the context of a large bank that's publicly traded, you need some oversight because how do you necessarily, how can you prove fraud? And, you know, it's just, it, it would be a very complex exercise. Um, you know, I think capital standards are probably a reasonable idea. Uh, 
If you're going to have insured deposits, you do need some oversight, which is why I think Calamiris and Haber are correct in saying that the FDIC might have been one of the original sins. Um, it did stop panics, you know, between the period of 1935 and 1980, but it was an excuse for the government to come in and sort of direct direct credit. So there's always a balancing act uh, act there. Um, but I think yes, uh, the, the the general the general approach should be that we're there to punish wrongdoing. And to the point about esoteric products, the the, the previous question, I don't really think that's the regulator's role to you know. Um, so, thank you. Hi. Yeah. First of all, just what part of New Jersey are you from? <laughs> The nice part. Okay. <laughs> I apologize if anyone's from New Jersey. But <laughs> um, I, yeah. So um, to preface my question, even uh, Milton Friedman and um, John Kenneth Galbraith, both no Nobel Prize winning economists from opposing economic schools, agreed that Fed policy precipitated the, bu the bubble of the 20s and the, and the depression. It was the, yeah. the market crash was virtually yeah. irrelevant. So my, I guess my question is, isn't the fundamental problem uh, the, so, the financial milieu in which we're existing, whereby the, the Congress tries to socially engineer through laws and, and tax, uh, tax laws combined with Fed monetary policy when in, and, and then generating moral hazard by implying that they're going to come and save you if something goes wrong. And uh, uh, instead of letting the market itself generate its own financial policy within the framework of, of uh, financial uh, uh, integrity? Yes, I think that's probably a good sum summation. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Hi. Um, I'd like to comment on the, and ask a question uh, regarding the uh, comment about the decreasing uh, down payment standards on, uh, on home uh, uh, mo loan mortgages. Um, I think there's a confusion of um, uh, cause versus uh, symptom when you focus on the uh, percentage uh, down payment. Uh, 30 years ago, uh, for, before you had securitization, when you went down to your local bank and they evaluated your credit and they gave you a mortgage and they put it in their, uh, in their vault for the next 30 years, uh, the underwriting standards were very, very different um, than when um, that, that then when you can sell 100% of the loan and therefore your underwriting standards don't matter. Yeah. Um, um, I, so I think it's, it's, it's incentives. The banks had an incentive then uh, to be careful in their underwriting standards. Mm -hmm. So that gets me to my question is, um, really it's two part questions. Do you think that if banks uh, had been required to uh, to eat their own cooking on a not immaterial portion of each loan that they underwrote uh, before they securitized it, um, would that have materially diminished uh, the crisis in 08? And uh, the second part of the question is, um, to what extent um, do you think if this policy had been in effect or is made into effect that it would uh, materially shrink the availability of credit uh, uh, for home mortgages? So, I mean, there's no doubt it would definitely, sh you know, many of the mortgage uh, uh, mortgages that were made in 08 would, or prior to 08 
probably the, the worst period was really 05 to 07, um, would, would not have been made. And that's always the trade-off. You know, when you hear Elizabeth Warren in, in Congress being like, these banks are evil and they're doing this and this and this, and then, but we need to give credit to everyone. I mean, there's a trade-off there, right? You, as I said, you know, a banking sector with no crises may not have any banks, right? And, and so there is a trade-off there. And it's to, um, to the earlier point about excessive, excessive risk, that's really the, you know, you price your risk accordingly and you take what risk you're prepared to take. But yes, I think there's no doubt that it probably would have, would have um, had that. And then, of course, you've got this situation. It, it, would, it would have certainly reduced my view, and this is just my view, there are others that may disagree. I think it would have certainly reduced the, the level at which we saw we saw problems, but what it doesn't necessarily do is, if you're then incentivizing banks to hold these kinds of subprime mortgages as you know high risk, uh, but high, high risk, high return collateral on their ba balance sheets, then you don't really fully get away from the problem. You just have had few of them, fewer of them in the market. Yes. Um, but there's no doubt. I mean, if you if you require a 30% or 20% or even 15% down payment from your borrower, and you assess their credit and you hold some of the risk, you would you would see the traditional default rate, which is something between six and eight percent. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. um, that's standard across the world. So yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I don't really have a question, but I just had several thoughts that I just wanted to kind of. Mike here. Um, no, that's very honest. Normally people are like, I have a question, and then they sort of... <laughs> I, 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 uh, I want to say how much I've enjoyed this meeting and meeting people. It's uh, really been a treat, but uh, uh, I think the older people will recognize some of this, and some of this I wanted to just mention. <laughs> I think it's a great idea to bring younger folk along, but uh, just among other little bits and pieces, you have a tremendous amount of information. Uh, for, and I, I wasn't going to say this, I don't mean to mean this offensively, but uh, I've been a golfer and Bobby Jones was a, a great golfer, but he was a great man, a great writer. And among other things, he was very successful after uh, winning uh, as an amateur the Grand Slam golf tournament. When, and he quit after he was 28 and went to work and uh, was very successful afterwards. And uh, one of the things he said is a uh, little brief things is that uh, you know, when you're writing a paper, make it as brief as possible and then look at it again and see if you can't make it briefer yet. <laughs> and I think of that, uh, I don't mean that, but you've presented a lot of material here. Yeah. Just uh, briefly, uh, I think that one of your comments was we learn nothing from history. And it brought up a couple of thoughts along those lines. One is that I've heard this all my life. If we don't know history, we're doomed to repeat it. I heard a quote about Harry Truman uh, in his later years after he had gotten out of um, the presidency and was under, had been under a lot of criticism, was uh, interviewed by a young reporter. And when he walked up to him, he said, hey, Harry, what's new? And Truman returned, and he was by this time 75, 80 years old. He responded, young man, the older I get, the only thing that I find that's new is what I don't know about history. And uh, I've mentioned this before, um, I've, uh, there's a book, it's a very easy read uh, about hierarchyologies, or we would say bureaucracies, The Peter Principle, it was printed in 1969. A lot of older people said, oh, I read that. I'd encourage them to read it again. And I just want to mention again, The Peter Principle for the younger people, 
Uh, you can find it on Amazon. It's a great book. It's a study of hierarchies or bureaucracies. And generally, he says it in a real funny way, uh, the larger and larger a business or a bureaucracy gets, the, the more chance is going to be for a screw up. And I think that fits with the smaller government element of what yes. I've learned to understand about the libertarianism. And uh, I think that's about all I had okay. to say. Thank you. Okay, uh, let, let two more questions. And let, me, let me offer uh, briefly an alternative scenario and ask your comment. Uh, you said 200 years of bad uh, banking. Was probably, yeah. Uh, and and I, I, actually, uh, there were no banks uh, that uh, went broke uh, in the United States between the uh, end of the Depression uh, and uh, the uh, recent debacle, except at the time of the uh, Arab oil embargo ending, and that's because banks had invested too heavily in oil and gas. Uh, there have been there other bank crises earlier and later, the Mexican debt crisis, the Asian debt crisis, but and individual banks were hurt, but you didn't have any massive failures. There was, of course, uh, the savings and loan crisis, which did not involve commercial banks, and uh, it, it happened when uh, due to a combination of incompetence and greed, uh, uh, pe people in uh, savings and loan associations granted vastly new powers, uh, misused them. Uh, and there was a great deal of, so there, but there were, there were very few uh, uh, bank failures in this country and uh, the regulatory climate uh, in the 50s and 60s and uh, 70s was was not that onerous. There were there were bad things, many, but there were many deregulatory effects, allowing commercial banks to pay interest on deposits, uh, uh, relaxing the usury laws uh, uh, applicable to commercial banks, and uh, so forth. Uh, but uh, in the 2000 after 2000, the social engineering of the federal government uh, was really ramped up. The Community Investment Act was applied, applied much more rigorously. Uh, you know. And so uh, it, it, was, uh, it, it wasn't so bad up until then. And, and the uh, most recent uh, debacle is due to the most recent uh, governmental efforts. That's the uh, proposal. So, I mean, I would, I would, I would probably, you, you did mention the savings and loan crisis. Obviously, t we saw Texas in the early 80s, the entire banking sector kind of collapse that was largely due to the oil. But, but that's the problem with having banks that are not geographically diversified is they become very susceptible to shocks within their local economy. And then the savings and loan crisis, I would argue that was essentially a banking crisis because the functions may not have been in commercial banks, but they would have been had the savings and loan um, associations not existed, and here you have the same kind of issue um, in the, the most recent crisis because, again, it wasn't essentially commercial banks, it was thrifts, <laughs> which were a separately regulated type of institution. And I've got Tom uh, glaring at me, sort of smiling in a glaring way. I'm sorry. <laughs> Very brief, Greg, look. 
Okay, you mentioned briefly the Export-Import Bank, which is somewhat of a current issue in that if it isn't reauthorized by, by September yeah. in Congress, then it will essentially go away. Where does that fit within the um, populist, cronyist system that you described, and do you think it's reasonable to expect that that might expire? Um, very quick. I, I have no idea. Um, it seems that there are a lot of people in Congress who would support it, including populists like Elizabeth Warren, so I'm not quite sure. But it's clearly a, I mean, it's clearly a, a handout to certain mm -hmm. large corporate interests. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't seem that there's any necess necessity for it to exist. There we go. Thank you. One minute. Over. <laughs>